we've been in a series we kind of entitled Reflections. Um, wanted to share with you some reflections on the sabbatical I took. We did that a couple weeks ago. And then really wanted to spend a couple messages talking about this notion of the kingdom. If you're around Waterstone much at all, you know that the kingdom is really important to us. It's kind of the heartbeat of what we're about, the kingdom and kingdom. Um, that's the frame. Last week started talking about uh, this notion, making the argument that the kingdom of God really is the, the framework we have to use to understand the whole of scripture. From creation, fall, redemption to restoration, it's really this story about uh, the kingdom being restored. And that not only do we see the whole of scripture that way, but especially the ministry of Jesus. So last week we, we kind of reviewed that story a bit and then focused in on Mark chapter 1, how he introduces the ministry of Jesus and really how that ties in with this ongoing story of God bringing about the restoration of his kingdom and that Jesus when he comes is really coming as king to reestablish his, his kingdom. And that's, we kind of, in a sense, need to put on kingdom glasses. Um, and, and then we tried to articulate the difference that makes. And we really said two things. One, and these are significant impacts or implications. We said, one, it changes the very nature of the gospel, our understanding of the gospel. We tried to draw a contrast between what we called, or I called the American gospel and the kingdom gospel, kind of a summary this is the American gospel. This is the gospel I was brought up on. Uh, my guess is you were as well. This is a sliver of the truth. It's a very uh, uh, individualized perspective on the gospel. Uh, it's, it's truncated, made smaller than it is. And there's pieces of it that I think are just not true. Uh, it starts out with this notion, I'm a sinner. That part's true. But again, notice it's very personalized. Jesus died for my sin. True, but incomplete, because he died to uh, redeem the whole world as well. Then the response to those truths is to accept Jesus. That's that, that we, we need to make a commitment to Jesus, give him our allegiance. Accept is probably not New Testament language, uh, but believe in is. And then go to heaven. And that, that part, actually, I don't think is true, because heaven comes here, uh, our eternal destiny is not to be ethereal beings floating on clouds, strumming harps. Our, our eternal destiny is to live in resurrected bodies. In this world that's been restored and the kingdom comes here, that's the eternal, eternal state. So I think a better way to articulate the gospel is this way. Now it's not so personalized, but I think it's truer to the uh, presentation of scriptures. God created us to co-rule a good creation. But humanity rebelled. Now you have these two kingdoms and God is working to restore his kingdom. So Jesus dies to redeem the world, defeating sin, death, evil, and Satan. He comes as the, the king to reestablish his kingdom. And now we're confronted with this choice. Which kingdom are we going to be a part of? And believing in Jesus is really a declaration of allegiance. That's what it means to trust him, to, to bend our knee, to proclaim him Lord. And then the restoration will bring heaven to earth. That's it's a much more complete understanding of the gospel, the good news. That's the story of the scriptures. That's the story of the ministry of Jesus. So kind of summarize it in one statement. 
The gospel is the announcement that Jesus has been made king by his atoning death and triumphant resurrection, which defeats Satan, sin, evil, and death itself. And thus, he will one day reclaim his kingdom completely. So uh, this understanding of the kingdom as the framework for the story changes our understanding of the gospel. And second, we talked about the implication. It demands our allegiance, that we declare our allegiance, submit to this king. There's a great book that uh, captures this notion of the kingdom. It's called Kingdom Book Come. By, I love his last name, Wakabayashi. Um, best book I've read it that's in an accessible form to understand the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom and how it should reshape our thinking about the church and our Christian lives. This is in the bookstore. We give it away to everybody who goes through the membership class. I'd love it if everybody at Waterstone would read it. You'll capture what's at our heart about the kingdom. I think it's 15 bucks. If you don't have the 15 bucks, talk to me and I'll make sure you get a free copy, all right? As long as you promise to read it. Great book. Uh, One quote from this Wakabayashi uh, summarizes what we've been talking about well. He says, the good news of the kingdom is about a king who has come to reign and is advancing that reign over his creation. The king has sacrificed his own life in our place so that we could be free to enter God's reign. Conversion, therefore, is submitting to his reign and allowing Jesus to have his rightful place as king over one's life. And the unfinished nature of the kingdom's arrival, because the kingdom is inaugurated but hasn't come in its fullness and we live in the tension between the now and the not yet, right? Uh, The unfinished nature of the kingdom's arrival calls a person to seek the establishment of more and more of his kingdom in one's personal life and relationships, in and through one's vocation, and in the world at large. It sets forth clearly that following Jesus means signing on for an ongoing struggle to push back the darkness and shine God's light into our world. The life of commitment, discipleship, and mission flows much more clearly from understanding the gospel as that for the kingdom of God. Okay? So this morning, we want to continue to talk about the implications of understanding our faith in this kingdom framework And specifically, I want to talk about it in in terms of how it impacts us as a church, all right? Um, What difference does it make for us as a church? We we have often said at Waterstone, we want to be a kingdom church, a a church that's focused on God's kingdom. But what does that mean and how does that work itself out? And why would you care, (laughs) okay? Um, Why would you care? Um... We'll talk about that in a moment. A number of years, uh, not this last year, a number of months ago, I was having a beer with a friend of mine who is a uh, principal of a school. And we were talking about mission and vision, and I was asking him what was the, the mission of his school. And he says, you know, I've never really articulated uh, a mission for our school. He says, when I talk about our school, though, what I do when parents are gathered and, uh, and teachers are gathered, I talk about our school as a purple bus. Um, and, I, and I talk about the characteristics of the bus and who's on the bus and where the bus is going and what the destination is on the front and the slogans on the bus. And, and I thought, that's brilliant. This is a great way to talk about an organization as, as a purple bus. 
So we had a staff retreat in October and I decided we were going to do the purple bus exercise. We broke our staff into groups and we gave each of them a big uh, piece of paper. And their assignment was to draw Waterstone as a purple bus and then figure out, you know, uh, what are the slogans on the side of the bus? Who's on the bus and who are they trying to pick up? Who's driving the bus? Where's their seat on the bus? What's the destination of the bus? How well is the bus, I mean, you know, how well is the bus run? You can go all kinds of places <laughs> with a purple bus. And it, it, it was a fun discussion. So this morning, I want to tell you some of the characteristics of the purple bus that make up Waterstone. And that should be important for, to you for two reasons. One, you don't want to get on a bus that's not going where you want to go. If you get on a bus and it's not going where you want to go and you go to the bus driver and say, hey, you really need to change your destination. All you're going to do is tick off the bus driver and end up where you don't want to be. So you want to make sure that uh, this bus is headed in the right direction for you. Second reason you want to understand this is I am absolutely convinced that, that the church that you get involved in, the community you participate in, will really shape your spiritual development. Now, we don't think about that much. We, we just, you know, uh, uh, see church as something we do. But, but honestly, when you become part of a church, you become part of a community. And you're submitting yourself to a certain kind of thinking and a certain kind of teaching and a certain kind of theology. And those things begin to, to shape you. The relationships you have, the experiences you have, the theology you learn, the way that scripture's handled, it begins to shape your worldview. And all those things will play out in your spiritual growth and your spiritual development. It, it will shape the kind of believer that you become, whether you intended to or not. This is a critical decision. I think sometimes when we go to a church, we, we kind of approach a church like we do most food, you know. If it tastes good, we eat it, right? And that's the criteria. We, we, you know, and that's kind of what we do in a church. We go, and if we like the me- music, and, you know, the preaching makes us laugh, and it's kind of entertaining, and we're not put to sleep, and they get a good children's program, this is the church for me. And that's okay. But if you go through life just eating what tastes good, what happens to you? You get fat. <laughs> you get unhealthy. There is a correlation between the food you take in and your personal health. And the older you get, the more you realize that. So, so what happens? You get a little heavy and you say, I got to start eating differently. And what do you end up doing? You start looking at food labels, right? Especially how many calories. But if you dive a little deeper, you want to know what the ingredients are and what's really in the food because you realize there's a correlation between what you eat and how well you feel and how healthy you are. Well, this morning, I want to kind of give you an inside look at Waterstone, uh, what we believe, what we think, what we value, what's important to us, kind of as this purple bus. Because it's important. So if we're a purple bus... What would we notice? Well, three things. One of the things you'd note first about this bus is that it has a target on it, kind of like a bullseye. And the reason it is, is it is in one sense under attack. We really believe that we are participants in a cosmic war. It comes out of our kingdom thinking, right? Uh, God's kingdom is coming on earth, but there's an opposing kingdom, and those two kingdoms are at tension, at war with each other. 
And it's not just a thing in the abstract. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, uh, um, Satan, or the Satan, the, the devil, the personified evil is on the offensive attacking God's people. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know the family of believers, not just an individual struggle, throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We're, we're not exempt. We're under attack. We're in the midst of this cosmic war, spiritual warfare. Whenever I think about spiritual warfare, the, the image that comes to my mind comes from John Bunyan's uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is this, this kind of allegory about Christian who is on his journey to the city of God and all the experiences he has along the way. At one point, he meets uh, a character named Apollyon. Apollyon is the devil or Satan. And, and they enter into combat. And Apollyon is throwing these fiery darts at Christian. And he gets wounded in the head and the hand and the foot. And he's about to despair. Uh, and, and then it gets worse. He loses his sword. And Apollyon thinks, now I've got him. And at the last moment, typical battle, right? At the last moment, uh, Christian is able to grab his sword and, and thrust it into Apollyon. Uh, he quotes uh, some passages of scripture and Apollyon uh, flies off. Spiritual warfare. Uh, the question, though, that comes is what does spiritual warfare, okay, we have this enemy, he, he, he is attacking God's church and we're in the midst of that. But what does it actually look like? What does it really mean to engage in spiritual warfare? And I, I think when we think of spiritual warfare, typically uh, we think of power encounters, right? Uh, where there's actually a demon or a demonic presence or an evil spirit and there's a certain kind of prayer that you use to bind those evil spirits or to cast them out. And we, we see it as this power encounter and that's how we visualize uh, spiritual warfare. Now, there are times where I think that happens. But I don't think that's the norm. I, I think, first of all, that, that most spiritual warfare is far more subtle. In fact, I think at times we don't even know that it's happening, that, that, that we're being influenced uh, by those evil forces. Look with me at Acts chapter 5-3. This is Ananias and Sapphira has sold a piece of property and they've pledged to give the money to the church. Only they don't give all of it. They just give a portion and lie about it. So Peter says this to Ananias. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't think Ananias knew that Satan has filled his heart. He had no idea. But Peter knows. It's far more subtle and sometimes it's indirect, but it's going on. Uh, uh, Satan really impacted Ananias' decision and his thinking. Um, the Holy Spirit and have kept you for yourself some of the money you received for the land. So it's very subtle. The second thing that I think is true about spiritual warfare is that most of it is fought in the realm of the mind. In other words, spiritual warfare isn't so much a power encounter as it is a, a truth encounter. That the battle really centers around our minds, truth, knowledge, and wisdom. Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is talking about his ministry and then he's going to come and visit them. Um, 
And he says this, he says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. So he's in tension with this, these opposition people in the church there. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So Paul is uh, assuming that we're in this cosmic war. He understands that. But notice what he says. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. These weapons we use. Notice what he says. He says, we demolish, what is it demolish? Arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against what? The knowledge of God. Isn't that fascinating? That the warfare is really about truth and understanding and knowledge and worldview. Um, and we take captive, what? Every thought. We don't typically think of spiritual warfare in terms of thinking correctly, thinking biblically, uh, in terms of argumentation and, 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 and taking captive our thoughts, that, that that's really spiritual warfare. Well, from Paul's understanding, it is. He wants to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Jesus. Uh, we forget what uh, the devil's primary strategies are. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, the God of this age, which is Satan or the devil, has what? Has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, Satan's primary strategy is one of deceit and deception, of blinding the world to the truth of who God is and what he's like. That's spiritual warfare. Even when you talk about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, um, it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, when we visualize this passage in our mind, we, we visualize it like that scene from Pilgrim's Progress, right? The individual Christian putting on the armor of God, fighting with Satan. First of all, this is not about the individual. This is a church and when he says you, it's you all. So when he says you all as a church, put on the armor of God because this is a corporate struggle, not simply an individual struggle. In fact, it manifests its more, itself more in the community of faith so that you can take your sin against the devil's schemes. This, this word here for schemes means a plan or strategy and it has the connotation of a plan or strategy that, that, that is deceptive. So, so the Satan scheme is to deceive us in our thinking. What we, how we understand truth, how we think about ourselves. He's the accuser. It's in the mind. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's these supernatural forces we're, we're going against. So we're to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Okay, but what is the armor of God? How do we, we defend ourselves? Well, look this. Stand firm then with what? The belt of truth. Isn't that interesting? Uh, military historians will tell you that uh, the Roman uniform, when they went into battle, the key piece was the, the belt that they put around their waist because it was the foundation that everything else attached to and Paul is saying, you know what that belt is? It's the truth. It, it, it's a right understanding of who God is. 
then he goes on, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Our offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit. What is the sword of the spirit? The word of God, the revelation of God, the revelation of who he is. So this battle isn't a power encounter. It's a truth encounter. It's it's helping people think correctly. I want you to think about this. Uh, I was thinking about the times I've messed up in my life or when somebody comes and, and they're messing up their life. It's usually not because they've been possessed by a demon, right? They're usually messing up their lives. I usually mess up my life when I'm what? Making stupid boneheaded decisions. When I'm not thinking correctly. When I'm thinking unbiblically. When, when my motives get twisted inside of me. In other words, you know, as a man thinks, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. Our thinking determines how we live. And if our thinking is incorrect, everything gets messed up. What is interesting to me in current evangelical culture and church culture, we are putting so much focus and emphasis on experience and emotion, that unintentionally we are downgrading the importance of thinking, of the rational, of the intellectual. Unintentionally, we're becoming anti-intellectual. Historians of the culture will will talk about this. That's an undercurrent in, in, in the movement of the church today. I mean, I I get frustrated. You know, we create this dichotomy in our culture. We talk about head and heart, right? He he gets it in his head, but he doesn't get it in his heart. I'm thinking, what the what the heck does that mean? Because that dichotomy between the head and heart is not a dichotomy you find in Scripture. In Scripture, the heart is the internal piece of you. It's made up your your mind and your will, and emotions play a part. But your heart is the center of you and how you think. And how you decide and make decisions about life. Because scripture has this understanding that how you think about who God is and who you are and the nature of the world and truth will determine how you live. Right? If we want to be transformed, how are we transformed? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In other words, this proclamation of allegiance, this is your true and proper worship. And then he says, do not be conformed to the pattern in this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is. I want to live out God's will. Then think biblically, think wisely, think correctly, think theologically. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. <laughs> Folks, you know, one of the things we forget is our faith, the Christian faith, is based on revelation. Revelation is God revealing himself to us. First through Christ, as he came and was incarnated, and then through the scriptures. That's revelation. So we know God by understanding his revelation of truth and knowledge. What I'm suggesting to you is uh, it's really important to think. I'm not saying you have to be Einstein. I'm not saying you have to be a great theologian. 
but I am saying you have to engage your mind. It's important in developing your spiritual growth. That's why at Waterstone, we have always put so much focus and emphasis on preaching. Uh, and we do that because we believe that if we preach the Bible and we try to preach it expositionally and say, this is what the Bible says and this is how it relates to your life. We do that because we believe that this book, uh, when you handle it correctly, has incredible power to change your life. We're radically committed to that. And, and at Waterstone, to be quite honest, honest uh, we are unapologetically thoughtful. We want to be. That's my intent. People will say to me, you guys, Nick, you're too heady, you're too cognitive. <laughs> and I go, dang right. That's on purpose. Because we want you to think. And we want you to think deeply and think well and accurately and biblically and have a worldview and understand your theology because it matters. Because it shapes how you live. It shapes how you understand the God of the universe. He's revealed himself. We want to be thoughtful. We want to be rational. Now, that doesn't mean we, we, we don't want to value experience and emotion or even sentimentality. Those things are, are important and we want to embrace those. Um, but never at the expense. Never at the expense of truth. We're, we're, we're committed to that. And honestly, that's why I think Waterstone is a great place to bring your questions and wrestle with things and explore things. We're not afraid of questions. We're, we're not af afraid of people wrestling with ideas. It's why Larry puts on all those classes. I mean, we've done one on immigration. We've done one on sexual, we're doing one on sexual harassment. We've done one uh, on transgender. We, we do all kinds of classes <laughs> because we want people to think well because it matters in terms of how you live out your Christian life. So, you look at the bus, there's a target on it. If you go to the front of the bus, uh, one of the things you'll notice in terms of the destination, there are two words, the kingdom. And what we mean by that, the kingdom is our destination because it's our mission. Our mission is to advance the kingdom of God to God's glory. I got online uh, this week and was looking at mission statements of churches um, it was interesting few of them mentioned kingdom most all of them really geared their mission statement around the notion of making disciples and I think that's great that's really important to make disciples it's critical it's necessary it's a priority but I'd like to suggest that it's not the priority Churches say that making disciples is their priority because they base it on the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. But I want you to notice something about the Great Commission, okay? It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is that? That's a kingdom statement. Jesus is saying, I have established my kingdom. Now I'm in charge. It's after he makes this kingdom statement that he says, therefore, go and make disciples. In other words, the reason you should make disciples is because I'm king. In other words, making disciples is an outgrowth of the priority of his kingship. And I would suggest that his kingship comes first. 
In fact, I think Jesus gets very explicit about this. In Matthew chapter 6, he tells us about what the, the focus, the orientation, orient and principle of life should be. Matthew 6, says this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you. In this context, Jesus has been talking about, about uh, uh, people worrying about food, what they should eat and what they should wear. And he's kind of foundational things of life. He says, don't focus on those. Focus on what's really important. I'll tell you what's really, really, really important. The kingdom and my righteousness. The righteousness here isn't personal morality, but it's, it's a word that could be translated justice. In other words, structuring things the way God wants them. God is very concerned that his will be done in every area of life. And so, Anika, you're being kind of nitpicky, right? No, not at all, because when you understand that it's the kingdom that is our mission, it changes the very agenda of the church. It expands it. Because most churches will say, well, we're just about, you know, populating heaven, getting people to accept Jesus. We're all about evangelism. And that's important. We want to be about that, but we want to be about much more than that. Eric Swanson uh, does a good job of describing this. He says, uh, the Christian church is to be an embodiment of the kingdom and a counterculture, a plot plan of the kingdom, a royal colony of heaven here to display how human society can be under the kingship of Christ. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see exhibited what family life, business practice, race relationships, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus. We're also to go out into the world as witnesses to the kingdom, but to spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. It is also working for the healing of persons and families and relationships. It's doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. It is ordering people's lives and relationships and institutions according to God's authority to bring in the blessedness of the kingdom. That's all part of our agenda as a church. So why we talk about three rhythms. You look at our three rhythms. We'll talk about transform. That's God's kingdom coming in us. In other words, it's the notion that God wants to rule every aspect of our lives and we're to bring everything in our lives under his kingship. Uh, uh, our relationships, uh, our money, our sexuality, our family, our marriage, our vocation, everything. There's no aspect of our life that isn't to be touched by his kingdom rule. Neighbor is God's kingdom coming in others. We, we want to make disciples. We want other people to come and acknowledge Jesus as king. That's, that's really important to us. But it's under the rubric of the larger picture of the kingdom. And then the last one's restore God's kingdom coming in the world. We want to, to see God's kingdom, his will be done in all kinds of different areas of life. That last one, this is why we do a class like Justice in Action where we talk about God's passion for justice uh, and seeing people's rights protected. This is, this is why we'll talk about the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, because God's passionate about those people and seeing justice done there. Uh, this is why we've had a relationship uh, with the Denver Street School for over 30 years. This is why we've been involved with Mile High Ministries uh, or Open Door Fellowship or why we encourage people to be involved with Joshua Station or why we encourage people to adopt a Compassion Kids. Those aren't evangelistic ministries. Those are all kinds of justice ministries. This is why we're so committed to Nightlights, a, a, a ministry that provides respite care for children with special needs. This is why last week we interviewed somebody to take the position of a coordinator for a ministry 
to children with special needs. We're going to hire them this week. We do that because we have this passion to see God's kingdom be done in every detail and aspect of life. So, so Nick, then how do you guys deal with the tension? I mean, there's been this tension between evangelism and, and social justice, you know? And people will play those off. And we really think that if you focus on the kingdom, it solves that tension. Think of the kingdom as the fuselage of an airplane. And evangelism as one wing. And social action as the other wing. Right? Now, if you're in a plane that has two wings, and you're told you can only have one, which one do you want, the left or right? Any takers on that? Now you're going to say, that's a stupid question. You're right. It's not attention. You have to have both. We have to be about making disciples and doing evangelism, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And we have to be about demonstrating it in terms of a passion for justice and the oppressed and changing our world. The last thing you notice about the bus is... It's not parked in the parking lot. Hopefully that purple bus is in the community and the purple bus is in the neighborhood and the purple bus is in the inner city and the purple bus is around the world. Because we believe that as a kingdom church, we are called to engage our culture and to influence it and to change it. Now, I think historically there has been this, well, when I was growing up, there was this notion that, that the church uh, was this place to hide away. Do you remember what uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16? You know, Peter has just made the confession that people are, uh, what, he was asked the question, who do people say? I'm? And Peter said, well, you're the Christ. That's who I say you are. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gate of Hades will not overcome it. All right. Now I want to show you an image and ask you a question. In this picture, there's a fortress and a horde attacking it. Uh, in this picture, what or who is the church? Yeah, we usually think, oh, well, the church is the fortress, right? It's being attacked by the world. Look closely at what Jesus said. He said, I'm on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, the gates belong to the fortress, and the people attacking the gates of hell are who? The church. We're, we're the guys on the offensive. We're, the church is not a fortress to hide away from the culture in. The church is called to be a force to radically change its world. And sometimes that makes us nervous because we're afraid that if we, if we get engaged in the culture, that world out there is going to taint us. But the incredible truth of the gospel is, is now that we're changed people, we're to taint the world. Look at what Jesus says about us in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty? And what he's saying, he's saying, look, you're to be so different and so distinctive that, that people notice you're like salt on food. You, you give it the flavor. 
but you can't lose your salt in it. You can't become like the world around you. You can't take on their values and think like them and live like them. You have to live out the values of the kingdom and live as a kingdom person and maintain your distinctiveness. Be different because of the kingdom and of Christ in you. Be, di be different. But then he adds that not only must you be different, but you must not hide away. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Does he put it on a stand? He, he said, don't, don't shy away from engaging the culture. The world is a dark place. It needs your, your light. We talked about the culture being like this dirty stream. We think our job is to go catch fish out of the culture, right? Uh, rescue people, get them on the boat because the culture's going to hell. The calling is more than that. We care about the fish, but you know what? We care about the polluted water and our calling is to get in the stream and not simply save the fish, but change the nature of the water. Now, ultimately, it won't be changed until Jesus comes back, but we're to work towards it now. So what would happen if we, we really began to change our thinking about our calling in life? What if we began to see that, that wherever God has placed us, uh, he's placed us there to be light in the darkness. And that you have a, a, a kingdom calling, that you actually are a kingdom agent in that place. Somebody has come up with the notion uh, of... Uh, seven mountains of culture or influence. Uh, these are the areas that need to be changed to, to make a difference in our culture. Business, government, media, arts, education, family, religion. What, what if the businessman began to say, hey, my business isn't just about making money. My business is about portraying the values of the kingdom. And what if you began to run a kingdom business? Other businesses would take note because you would be radically different in how you thought and how you did business and what your goals were. What if we, in government, what if we had people who were actually true believers who would speak truth in the context of politics and not give up on their integrity in the process and do it in a kingdom way? How about the media? What if we had writers who weren't Christian writers, but writers who were Christian, who published their material, not with Christian publishing houses, but with secular, Christian, secular publishing houses so that other people other than Christians would read their writing. Because when we write simply to Christians, we just talk to ourselves. We don't make a difference in the, the culture. Well, Nick, that, that's really hard to get published. Yeah, it's really hard. So be a really, be a really, really good writer. Right? Kind of like Christian writers from old. They didn't just write for Christians. How about music? What if we had musicians who were Christian rather than Christian musicians? In other words, they, they played on the secular market. They did music from their perspective, kingdom perspective, but it was such good music that everybody wanted to listen to it. See, our temptation is we, we want to isolate ourselves from the world, so we create our own institutions, our own publishing houses, our own schools, our own music, our own retirement homes. <laughs> When the calling on us is just the opposite. I mean, what if we had, uh, uh, I mean, one of the most influential places you can be is in the public schools, being a teacher in the public schools. Man, because you're going to shape lives. I remember back to Dahl Shaw. She was uh, my teacher in 12th grade 
uh, English, college English, uh, and last class advanced placement in high school. 62 years old, this, this large black woman who was incredibly articulate and incredibly bright, and you'd walk into her room and she'd grab your hand and she'd go, how you doing, honey? And she put Bible verses on the board and talked to scripture as literature and challenged your thinking and, and did it from a biblical perspective. And, and man, she just, she reshaped my life and the lives of those kids in the class. She didn't beat them over the head with the Bible. She made it interesting. There's this incredible literature. We need people like that. Told you the story about Christine Kane. She's a speaker from Australia. She was in the United States um, on a speaking engagement. Family came along. They don't have Walmarts down in Australia, I guess, so kind of Walmart was a tourist attraction. She took her kid with her to Walmart and he saw a flashlight. He wanted to buy a flashlight. So they got the flashlight, they got batteries. Once they got it purchased, he put the batteries in the flashlight and turned it on. And he said, mom, let's go find some darkness. What if that was our perspective? What if we said, you know, we're light. We just need to go find some darkness. We need to engage our culture. Because when we engage our culture as kingdom agents, we begin to make an influence. And our influence in the world is not by our coercive power, it's by our compassion and our love. That's how we change the world. What would happen if you began to see yourself as a light in the darkness? So that's the bus of Waterstone, at least part of it. We're going to end our service this morning by um, celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, when we do the Lord's Supper, it, it is really a proclamation of the death of Christ and what he's accomplished by his death. It's a proclamation of the gospel. But it's also an exercise in identification. In other words, when we take the elements and ingest them, we're not only saying something about Jesus and what he's done, we're saying something about us. On a global perspective, universal perspective, we are participating in a ritual that has been done for 2,000 years by God's people in every century. And even today, there's millions of people around the world who are doing this thing of breaking bread and partaking of the cup. And when we do that, we're saying, hey, we're, we're part of them. But there's a local aspect of that too. In the early church, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they would take one loaf. And the reason they would take one loaf and everybody would break off of it is because that one loaf represented that. And when you did that, you were saying, hey, this is my community. This morning, I'd like you to reflect on that because in, in taking communion this morning, I want, I want you to think about whether or not Waterstone is your bus. There's lots of good buses out there. I happen to think this is a great bus, but not the only bus. And we want you here, but if it's not working for you, go find a, another bus. It's okay. Just get on a bus. Hopefully you'll get on here. But you got to be part. It can't just be their bus. It has to be your bus. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're making that proclamation. 
This is my church. This is my community. This is the body to which God has called me to live out my faith. I want you to reflect on that when you're ready. The servers will come down. They'll be stationed around the room. Make your way to break a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and proclaim the gospel of Christ.